Today's sermon text is 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 21. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and His love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in Him and He is in us because He has given us of His Spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in Him and He in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in Him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as He is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because He first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from Him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. This is God's Word. Thank you, Steve. Let's uh, pray again before we jump into this morning's message. Jesus, we come to you as always with empty hands. We have nothing to bring you. We have no merit to appeal to. We have nothing except what you have given us. We need you. We need you desperately. Some of us feel that, oh, acutely right now. After a week of darkness and brokenness, medicating. And some of us are here and we're very lighthearted. And we're far from that feeling. But the same is true of all of us. We desperately need you. And so I pray, Jesus, that today that the Holy Spirit would be so kind to draw our hearts to You. I pray that You would break down prideful barriers, stubbornness. I pray, Jesus, that You would explode in the Spirit in our hearts and minds. Fill us anew and pour out of us so that everything we touch, everything, every person that we interact with would experience the life of the risen Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Um, 
It's really, really good to be back here. We had a vacation for a few weeks in June, and then last week uh, I was out again, and um, um, I've had a word that's been brewing in my heart for more than several weeks based in that text. And uh, recently I found myself in a conversation with a local pastor. Um, it was a sobering conversation. And this was, this is a leader, um, great church. Um, he approached me and said to me, in tears, literally in tears, I'm a police officer, Chris. Um, the worship leading that I do at the church is my gift. Um, he said, I'm a conservative. Um, my wife and I both love Jesus. My wife's a liberal. And she's no longer worshiping at our church. She's not in any church. And he said, the reason is, is the election cycle over the last couple of years was so dehumanizing for her at our church. The messages that were posted on social media, particularly Facebook, that were demeaning of people of her political persuasion were so mean-spirited and so toxic and so bitter that, um, honestly, I'm not sure what the future of her relationship is with Jesus. And he asked for prayer. Um, weeping uncontrollably at a certain point. If you were to ask people in that particular church, what is the center of your life? When you're cut the deepest, who are you? They would probably say, many of them, Jesus. Jesus. John tells us that that claim is verifiable. There are metrics that Scripture gives us to help us see whether or not the claim that we make, that we love the God that is invisible, that that claim is actually true. You see, what she found, and the lead pastor was standing there in that conversation affirming everything that he was saying. So this wasn't just some skewed, bitter person who found me after a church service. His lead pastor verified that this was the case with a lot of sadness and sorrow. And what she discovered at her church was that the rhetoric about Jesus did not match the poison that was in the well of their church. She learned that really at the end of the day, to be a welcomed member and part of their local church, she also had to be a conservative and harbor deep contempt for liberal people. That was the message that she received.
I thought I'd begin my sermon with a really lighthearted illustration, you know? <laughs> Something that everybody could digest and swallow really easy. Um, why be so intense after being gone for a few weeks? But I really believe that when we're in, in church services, we need to feel something. And I know some of us are going, really, Chris? Politics. And I'm not unhappy I made you feel that way. Because I think we all need to feel this and see this. There have been more people who have been alienated and repelled by the church of Jesus Christ over things that are not central to our faith. And we wonder why people are so angry and rabid toward the church, especially in a city like ours. You see, I have the opinion, I have the opinion, and I believe I can back this up biblically, that if something can bring my relationship with you to an end, then that something is an idol in our lives. I think that the resurrection power of Jesus is so profound and electric and visceral that if we really dedicate ourselves to the life of Jesus, despite the fact tension will enter our relationships because we're all broken. We all bring our brokenness to a relationship. All of us do. I believe that Jesus is greater and bigger and mightier than that issue, and that issue does not have to doom our friendship in Jesus. And I think, I think it is a blight on the American church that there is so much division and broken relationships that result from ideological and political differences. And I think it's sin. I'm not saying we shouldn't have particular views on these issues. I'm not saying that. I've got my views. You've got your views. I'm talking about the way that we handle those views with one another. I'm talking about the grace that we have or don't have as we interact with one another over important issues such as politics. We need grace. One of my, um, I think I'm ready to say this. I'm ready to make this statement publicly. The greatest album ever made is The Burning Edge of Dawn by Andrew Peterson. Many of you probably never heard of it. That is the greatest album. Just trust me. It's the greatest album ever. You can Google that, and uh, it'll say that. Um, the greatest album ever made, at least in my life, is The Burning Edge of Dawn. If you're taking notes, you should write that down. The Burning Edge of Dawn. You can get it on Spotify uh, by Andrew Peterson. Um, I first was impacted by this album. The moment I first listened to the first, the first note the first lyric of the first song about two or three years ago, I was impacted and cut very deeply. Um, I felt like every song resonated with my brokenness and my hurt and honestly a lot of tension and anxiety and fear and anger and sadness that I had been feeling for a long time in ministry. And there's one particular song, actually two songs in a row, that he writes to his wife that are Stunning. They're just stunning songs. They're so good that I can sing them to Jesus. It's just, it's incredible. And there's a song that he wrote called We Will Survive. And I'm going to read you just one verse. Because this verse really grabbed me and continues to convict me today. 
In the song, We Will Survive, he says these words to his wife. Do you remember how I used to say, love is a fire and it's going to burn us up? Remember that, how I used to say that? Love is a fire and it's going to burn us up. The power of our love is going to carry us to vistas of joy and, and happiness together. But then he said this, to make the space for grace to grow. Now it feels like love has called my bluff. To make the space for grace to grow, now it feels that love has called my bluff. The reason I like that lyric is because I always feel that love, grace, calls my bluff. Once I begin to feel like I'm really growing in love, I then see myself behave in a certain way or think in a certain way that brings me a lot of shame and embarrasses me. And... And then I think to myself, man, have I grown at all? But I love what he says here because it, it, it reflects another deep, deeply held belief that I have, and that is this. I really believe Robert preached a great message last week in the gospel. And today what I want to do is talk more about what the gospel does. Because we can celebrate and laud Jesus and gather around the glorious gospel of Jesus but I think it really begs the question, what now? What should we expect to happen in our lives if we really get the gospel? If we're truly gospel-centered, it's a buzzword that's been really uh, uh, used a lot over the last 10 or 15 years, certain circles. If we're really gospel-centered, what does it look like to be gospel-centered? What practically can I see in my life, and I am of a, I'm growing in the conviction, and my behavior doesn't often reflect this, doesn't always reflect this. So I'm a sojourner just like you are. But I'm really beginning to believe deeply that the gospel is calling us to be love pilgrims, love pioneers. The gospel calls us to see the outer boundaries of our ability to love, and it says, go beyond those boundaries to a place that you don't know how to love, and you don't know how to give of yourself, and learn to love in that place. Learn to love there. Be a love pilgrim, a love pioneer, a love trailblazer. Don't be satisfied with being able to love a certain group of people. Because like my friend, my new friend and his wife, they thought that they really loved and were loved by their church. And they discovered that there were a lot of folks who didn't love them, who didn't treat them in tenderness. And despite the fact that they may have ideological disagreements, couldn't even stand to be in the same room with them. And yet, we name Jesus as our Lord. I know this is heavy, but this is what we're going for at our church. We're spending the next several weeks to a month or two. I don't know. I told you two weeks ago when I preached that we're still trying to figure out what the series is. I don't even know what it is. But, um, but we're, we're going to be doing a lot of talking over the next few weeks about where the church is going, what we can expect over the next few months, some vision-oriented things. And this is really at the top of the list for me. This is who we are as a church. Now, when I say this is who we are as a church, I don't mean we've arrived. We're far from it. We're far from it. 
But this is what we're going for. Everything, I would like to believe that every decision we make is made for reaching for this purpose. And and I'm just going to read to you our church's vision statement. Renewal Church is a community filled with all kinds of people learning to love one another, making Jesus impossible to ignore. I remember when we wrote that, it was really important to us that there be a humble tone about our vision statement. We don't want a vision statement that we're so excited about ourselves and our own church that we feel like everybody in Memphis needs to come to our church. We don't think that we're the greatest church in this city. We're like number three, but we're, you know, we're up there. Um, we don't think we're the greatest church in this city. We really don't. <laughs> we really don't. Anytime somebody gets mad about our church, I'm like, listen, get in line because I'm at the head of that line. Nobody has a list of things that they don't like about this church longer than mine. Nobody does. But um, we wanted to make sure that there wasn't a hubris or a pride or arrogance, uh, a shadow over the vision statement of our church. It was important to us that the way that we, that the way that we expressed our vision said a few things, that we're not there yet and we can't do this alone. The way we view Renewal Church is that we are part of the church at Memphis. We're part of the church at Memphis. We are not the best church in Memphis. We're not trying to be the best church in Memphis. If you, you'll, if you hang out with us long enough, you're going to notice some attention that we live in. We really believe in excellence, but we don't take ourselves very seriously. You're going to notice that, that tension that we live in. If somebody makes a mistake, you know, tells a car to park in the wrong place, we're not chewing that, that, that volunteer out after service because they did something wrong. If Jeremy messes up a lyric or if I drop the ball or do something, we're not chewing people out because they messed up. That's not who we are. That's not who we are. Uh, we don't take ourselves seriously. We reach for excellence. We really do. But at the end of the day, what we are trying to do is cultivate a community of believers who really loves one another. This is what we're going for. And love means learning how to live with each other's mistakes and each other's flaws. And if that person never changes, my love covers a multitude of their sins. That's what we're going for. I will be the first to admit, this is so, so hard. It would be easier just to preach and have amazing services. It would be easier to do that. It would be easier not to know any of you. It would be easier to do that but I don't believe that's what the Bible's vision of church is. We're a community. And so I want to dive in and talk for a few minutes about this thing called love. So um, verses 16 through 18, if you would just join me there for a moment. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. He's talking about believers, people who have come to faith in Jesus, people who have experienced this mystical and profound and real phenomenon of the Holy Spirit entering into your life and the the view that you had of Jesus at one time, which was he's boring, he's lame, his teachings bug me, I don't want to do what he says because that's not fun. All of a sudden, the Spirit enters into someone's life in a moment or somehow massages their heart toward the kingdom over time. But that person now can say with John, this is us. We have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. We believe it. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God. And God abides in him. So we must abide in him. 
be with Him. Immerse ourselves in Him. And then he says in verse 17, by this. What's the this that he's talking about? It's not just at the abstract idea of love. He's saying by this, by immersing yourself in God, by giving ourselves to God and His love, by this is love perfected in us, with us so that we may have confidence on the day of judgment. Now, I want you to notice something here. This is really remarkable. John was writing to a church that had profound bad teaching and heresy active in that church. Profound. It's crazy. If you go back to chapter 1 of verse 1 of 1 John, John says this, this Jesus whom we have seen touched and held with our hands the word of life. It's profound the way that he describes Jesus. He's not, those aren't just his beginning introductory comments about Jesus before he gets to the good stuff. He's making a point because back in those days, there were people who believed inside the church that were taking people out of the church. There were people who believed that Jesus wasn't really the Son of God. There were some who believed that when Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist, before that, prior to that, he was a normal dude. A really devout religious person, but a pretty normal dude. Nothing special about him or spectacular, but when he was baptized and the Spirit of God descended upon him, he was anointed as the Christ. And then he did all these wonderful things. He taught incredible things. He performed miracles. He did amazing things. And then at the end of his life, he was crucified and the spirit was withdrawn from him and he just died. That's what some people in the church believed. Others believed this, that Jesus wasn't even a real human. He was like this spiritual projection from God. He was a projection. He was like a hologram. He looked real. He even felt real. But he wasn't. People believed some crazy stuff back then. Just like they do now. Now, I want you to imagine people in our church preaching this stuff. I want you to imagine visiting a community group and people are saying, okay, guys, instead of studying the sermon notes from this last Sunday, here's what we're going to talk about. This heresy called docetism that really resonates with me. We don't believe that Jesus was born of a virgin. We don't believe that Jesus lives forever. We believe he was a regular dude. If you went to that, you would rightly start screaming as loud as you could. Ah! Like literally, you have to do that if somebody ever preaches that at our church. Stop it. And then run as fast as you can and leave our church. Don't ever come back. Never, ever come back to our church. Um, Don't take that out of context. (laughs) And you would think that if that were happening at our church, the elders would say, dude, you need to get up on that stage and preach the gospel. You need to get up there and fix all this crazy teaching in our church. And John does that. And you would think that John would say in verse 17 that what gives us confidence on the day of judgment is that we're gospel-centered. Is that we know the gospel. 
I can talk to you about justification. I can talk to you about adoption. I can talk to you about other theological words that I've forgotten about that are really makes me sound smart. Uh, I could talk to you about all this stuff. And that is what's going to give you confidence on the day of judgment. You can repeat the gospel to Jesus. You say, well, he's got it. Let him in. But he doesn't say that here. It's important that we're gospel nourished. It's vital. The gospel is everything. But here he says that if you want to have confidence on the day of judgment, you better be able to look back over your life and see maturing, developed love. Because if you can't see that, it doesn't matter what you know. It's heavy. John doesn't appeal to having perfected theology. Because as much as we want to believe it in the Western world, especially in the Bible Belt South, we do not have perfect theology. A friend of mine was preaching recently and he said, Man, I was raised, he said, I was raised Southern Baptist. And he said, We knew we were right. And he said, I had friends that were Methodist. And they knew they were right. And the Catholics know they're right. And that reform bunch, they really know they're right. Everybody knows they're right and they know everybody else is wrong. And there's so much pride and egoism in all of this toxic stuff. I am not saying good theology is not important because all that text that Steve read this morning is good theology. He talks about Jesus being the propitiation of our sins, meaning that Jesus absorbed the wrath of God for our sin that we deserved. This doesn't just happen. You've got to put your trust, your faith, your dependence in the person and the work of Jesus. But we do that for a reason. Because we come to God broken. We come to God loveless. We come to God with hard hearts. And God, because He loves us and has called us to be His image bearers and to live our lives in a way that leads to human flourishing in our jobs, in our families, in our world, He sent Jesus. And Jesus lived for us a life that we could not live. He earned God's favor and God's pleasure in a way that no one, no person could ever earn. And he took on the wrath of God on the cross in a way that no one would have ever been able to endure. This is huge. But that's not the end of the gospel, my friends. Because the gospel should continue with all of us abiding in that wonderful, beautiful God and looking for the metrics of gospel growth in our life that I am being changed by the love of God. I look more like God. I think more like God. And you can boil that down to one word, love. 
Am I loving like God? Am I? Am I loving like God? 1 John 3.18 Little children. I love the tenderness of John's words. He says some like heavy things. You're a liar if you don't love your brother. And he says, little children. Let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Love in deed, love in truth. Truth and love are inseparable. So if you're hearing me say that the gospel is, uh, you know, not as important, that's not what I'm saying. Pure love comes from us really getting the gospel. And more importantly, I think for us in our context, where everybody says they get the gospel, we know we're getting the gospel when love is being to come out of our lives. Real love for one another. And how do you know that you're really loving? Jesus says it's easy to love those who love you. But loving your enemies, loving those who use you, loving those who betray you, loving those who speak evil of you, Loving those who blunder into your life in mean and intolerant ways every single day, a thousand times a day, learning to love those types of people. Learning to love those, those folks. Y'all look so excited. He says something in verse 20 that's really profound. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. As I mentioned a moment ago, many of us claim to love God. We claim that. And it's like some people, you know, I found myself on situations trying to correct and disciple a, a sinning brother or sister. And sometimes I get the, I love Jesus card. As though I, I, can't, I can't, how dare I question their love for Jesus. Despite the fact that their family may be falling apart, there's clear integrity issues, um, brokenness that they're not willing to face in their lives. There's a real reticence to say, hey, maybe there is something broken about me. Maybe, maybe the love that I have for God isn't, isn't really that love. Maybe I don't love God as much as I think I do. Because that's what John's going for here. John wants you to feel these words. So many times our first reaction to the Bible is to study. And I think we need to take it in emotionally at first. I really do. We need to let it hit us and make us angry. We need to see how we twist the Bible to back up our own theological assumptions. We need to feel it first. And I think we need to feel this. John wants us to feel this. He wants us to be offended that he would dare call us a liar even though we claim to love God. He wants us to be aghast at this. For who does not love... You cannot love a God that you can't see if you don't love a brother that you can't see or a sister. So I want to end by talking about how to grow in love. Now, I'll, I'll be the first to admit here, and the first to admit because I'm the one preaching, so I'll be the first to admit this, that it's, John doesn't say, now here's how you love. He sort of does. He says, abide in God. 
There's a lot of people who are like, man, well, how do I do that? I want to end by giving you some thoughts. These aren't in order. These are loose, loosely affiliated thoughts. How do I grow in love? How do I do that? Because if you believe that the Scriptures are the Word of God, you should feel that verse back there where John said, you can have confidence on the Day of Judgment if you are growing in love. I love John Stott in his commentary said, he talked about maturing, developed love. That's what he says perfect love means. It doesn't mean that you are flawless in your ability to love. But he does say that it's it's a growing, developed love. And I began to think about what that would look like. How do you have a growing and developed love? What does that word develop mean? Can anybody give me some, like, tell, how do you develop something? What do you do? Practice it. Practice it. Anything else come to mind? How do you develop something? Study it. Invest in it. What, what attitudes or posture of your heart should you have as you are developing in love? Patience. Patience. Perseverance. Vulnerability. Can't have love without vulnerability. It's impossible. Not real love. This is what developed love looks like. So this means that we need to approach the practice of love as a practice. A practice. I want to take you back to to the politics analogy that I began with. Nobody was born a rabid Republican. Republicans are so mad at me right now. You better chase that with something mean about Democrats. (laughs) Preacher. I told you he's a liberal. Let's get out of here. (laughs) Nobody is born a rabid Democrat. That's developed in you. It's developed by focusing on an ideology. It's developed by studying. It's developed by immersing yourself in cable TV news, in talk radio. It's developed by sitting in it and letting it wash over you. To the point that you can't see our world except through a political lens. Should I give the, I should probably give the qualification that I love America, okay? When an F-14 flies flies over, a little tear goes. (laughs) I saw the flag that flew in the War of 1812 that inspired the Star-Spangled Banner, our national fight song. Um, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Um, I love America. But you know what else? God loves lots of countries. (laughs) He loves lots and lots and lots of countries. Not less than America. Did you know that? Just a, just an aside. Just an aside. Um, we should have God's view of our world. The point is, is that you don't arrive at your ideology just because it happened. 
You didn't, the Holy Spirit didn't make you a Republican or a Democrat. It was cultivated. Love is cultivated. And we grow up in the Western church in such a way that we believe that if something spiritual happens in our life, it should boom, happen. So if I read my Bible enough, it'll just happen. It requires giving yourself to it, a perfecting of it, a patience, a pursue, a, pers- a pursuit of it. And so I want to just give you a few ideas as we wrap this up today. I want to encourage you to look at the limits of your love and get used to feeling inadequate. Feel your inadequacy. We don't like feeling inadequate. We like to feel victorious and strong, and we ignore things that we're weak at. We try to suppress it. I think we should get used to looking at our inadequacy. Feel it. Feel the guilt and sadness that comes with absolutely stinking at love. Now, I know you're like, guilt? Wait a second, Chris. Jesus took our guilt. Yes, Jesus took our guilt, our legal guilt before God on himself. But we all have the healthy feeling of guilt. The healthy feeling of guilt causes me to feel badly when I treat you wrong. I should have that feeling. If you don't feel guilty when you do wrong, there's something very wrong with you psychologically. Guilt is good in the sense that it should remind us of our wrongdoing and push us to do what's right. So if I hurt you, I'm going to feel bad about that. I should. Maybe I hurt you in some ways that I'm not aware of, and you should come to me and say, Chris, this hurt. I'm like, oh, man, I feel so bad about that. That's good. A sorrow over wrongdoing. We should feel sorrow over not loving the way that God wants us to love. You're never going to reach for love if you don't feel sorrow for for not love. I I would submit to you that spiritual passion is birthed in the context of, I'm a failure, I'm broken, only Jesus can fix this mess. That's the only way I've found growth in my life is I've come to Jesus. I have hungered and thirsted for righteousness. I had nothing to bring to the table, and I had to turn to Jesus. If I thought I could do it on my own, I sort of calloused mine and and deceived my own heart. So I think you should feel sorrow for not experiencing the love that God wants you to feel. Don't suppress it. I love what C.S. Lewis says in um, one of his books. He says, He says, we are not metaphorically, but in very truth, a divine work of art. Something that God is making, and therefore something with which he will not be satisfied until it has a certain character. That's how much he loves us. And so he's going to constantly push us and bend us around his truth until we are broken And we come to him needy. Jesus, I have nothing. Please, please. A couple more thoughts. So feel sad for your limited love, but also remember this, that before we did anything, he loved us. You are loved by God. Even when you are not loving, you are loved by God. You are treasured. God.
So I, don't, I want you to feel healthy guilt for not love, but I don't want you to feel toxic shame. I'm worthless. I stink at being a Christian. I'm not even saved. I, I, don't, I don't want you going there. I want you feeling healthy guilt. Oh, man, I should be more of an emotional presence with my children and my wife and my friends. I've not been. I stare at this stupid thing too much, doing this. You need to feel guilt for that. But you don't need to feel shame in the sense that you you see yourself as worthless and not even of God or belonging to God because God loves you. He treasures you. He treasures you. And as you do this, underneath all of that, there's something, there's a practice that we all have to have. And I'll end with this. Devote yourself to Christian community. You cannot learn to love with a Hillsong worship album playing in your car. You can't. You'll feel Jesus, I know, but you're not going to learn to love that way. You are not going to learn to love doing Bible studies. You will be faced with God's inarguable, absolute truth. But you will not know how to practice love and have the ability to practice love until you have the proximity of people around you. You've got to be with people. You've got to be with them. The only way you're going to grow in love is to be with people that challenge your loving limits. The only way. And then you can repeat those words. I almost said Adrian Peterson. He's running back for the Vikings. Uh, Andrew Peterson. Um, <laughs> to make the space for grace to grow, now it feels that love is called my bluff. And as you do this, I want you to patiently watch and expect love to begin to bubble up over time. You're going to notice things about yourself that you don't like. You're going to see a defensive sarcasm that always keeps people out there. And God's going to begin to convict you of that. You're going to notice that you check out of conversations when you can't talk about you. And so you're going to see a narcissism in some of your lives. I don't say that to condemn any of anybody here. I've seen these things in my life. You're going to see these things. Become a student of your heart and look at the ways that you dehumanize or you don't love very well the people around you. And begin to embrace the sadness that comes with, oh, that's not good. And then go to Jesus. Remember that you're loved. Jesus always wants to be with you even when you are loveless. Saturate yourself in Him. Root yourself in the community. And in 10 years, you're going to look back over your shoulder and go, wow, look at the grace of God in my life. I know. I know we want to feel it at the end of a service, don't we? We want to come to the front, get lathered down with anointing oil, and we want something awesome to happen. Light, light a match, you know. <laughs> That would be awesome. We'd be on the news. <laughs> I know we want that, but that's not the way love grows. Now, we want to pray with you. We're going to have people at the front at the end of the service if you want to know what it means to follow Jesus. If you need ministry because you're hurting. If you just want somebody to pray with you because you love what you're hearing, but you're like, you feel like that the possibility of living this out is a thousand miles away and you just need hope and encouragement, we want to pray for you. But the way that we're going to grow in love is through that process. Jesus, we love you. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you for your grace.